Welcome to the Zetamar Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Rain. The war in Ukraine has meant talk of a transition away from fossil fuels has taken a back seat, particularly in places like Mozambique, which could be an important provider of coal and gas as Western countries stop buying from Russia. Brazilian mining company Vale this week tied up its sale of the Mortis coal mining project to India's Jindal, then revealed that the project had had perhaps its most profitable quarter ever in Q1 this year. A senior official at the Energy Ministry confirmed Mozambique cannot afford to stop exporting coal, and his boss, Minister Max Tanella, said the gas industry will bring new opportunities. We should soon hear from the IMF about its outlook for the Mozambican economy, but all the signs are that it sees gas as crucial to Mozambique's future. One way the gas revenues can affect the future of Mozambique is through the establishment of a sovereign wealth fund, and one of the conversations you'll hear in this podcast is with sovereign wealth fund expert Andrew Bauer, on the pitfalls Mozambique needs to look out for if it goes down that road. Tanzania is also looking to get its dormant LNG project off the ground, something that will play into increasingly complex relationships between Mozambique and its neighbours in East Africa and the Great Lakes. In the wake of President Nusi's trip to Uganda this week, we spoke to Peter Buffan of the Cabo Ligado project to try and unpick the different dynamics at play. The podcast is released every Saturday, and features news and analysis from both the Zetamar team and special guests. Sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website, zetamar.com, to receive the podcast by email. Or you can also find us on podcast apps and on Spotify, which is currently perhaps the easiest way of subscribing to the show and making sure that you don't miss an episode. But we start off with a look back at the week's news with Zetamar editor Tom Bowker and Mozambican journalist Fernando Lima. Okay, hello again, Fernando Lima. Thanks for joining us again here on the Zitma podcast. Um, let's have a little rundown of the events and the news stories of the week, uh, including a statement from the Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Energy confirming that Mozambique is not going to give up mining coal anytime soon. And I guess who can blame them when Vale released results this week showing um what I think are probably record profits at the Murti's mine, um, thanks, I guess, in part to geopolitical events uh, causing commodity prices to spike. Um, do, Mozambique is kind of a little bit stuck in the um, energy transition. It's still uh, highly dependent on fossil fuels, as the as the permanent secretary said. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's true. And uh, that's the, the, the conservative approach, I would say, uh, of Mozambique in relation to uh, fossil uh, fuels like uh, uh, coal or, uh, or uh, gas or uh, oil. And, uh, that's, uh, and uh, I would say that it's not a very sophisticated argument because uh, it, it's based on this sense that the others have been for uh, decades exploring uh, those uh, those those minerals, and uh, why we should not have the same entitled to the same same uh, rights, uh, and we are not the major pollutants uh, in the uh, in the in the world. So we have all the rights. Uh, I guess uh, this is part 
the problem is it's uh, that this is just part of the equation. Uh, Mozambique needs uh, finance to explore those resources, and as the world is changing, you also need to to change your analysis. You need to change your approach. And if Mozambique just stacks on this uh, conservative, uh, immobilistic, I would say, approach, uh, it will end up quite isolated, despite, I would say, on the other hand, and in benefit of the country and the country's strategies that, uh, yes, the government is being uh, quite open to alternative uh, energies uh, like uh, wind and uh, solar uh, solar uh, and uh, there is in fact very very good progress in solar energy so in practical terms despite the the theoretical uh, uh, analysis is not uh, going deep into these different nuances uh, in relation to energy yes the country is doing an effort to diversify and find out other sources of energy. Yeah, we we definitely are seeing um, more talk and yeah, more projects coming on uh, solar and wind. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, I, I think I also get the impression that the IMF and the World Bank at the moment are not in the mood to really be pushing Mozambique away from fossil fuels. And I think we're still waiting to get the Article Four document from the IMF, which is going to be. Uh, I guess what really shapes uh, its thinking around the new program, but the impression we have so far is that they really see gas still as as really key to Mozambique's economic development over the over the next couple of decades. Yes, definitely, definitely, and you have seen the the shifts, uh, and especially having in mind the whole uh, issue of the Russian Ukraine uh, war, there is a more moderate tone. Uh, in relation to uh, to gas. Yeah, yeah. So staying in the energy sector, um, the Kohorabasa Hydroelectric um, released its latest results this week, but also we had um, the announcement of a, a new list of companies vying, bidding to um, to build the new Mpandungkua hydroelectric plant, which would be 1.5 gigawatts project with a long history, but which is still on the drawing board. But um, Mozambique does seem more serious than ever about getting this project underway. And I thought it had quite an interesting list of bidders. There was Total Energies in there, as, it's, as it is on every energy project in Mozambique at the moment, bidding along with EDF. That looks like a very strong consortium. There are Japanese consortia, Chinese consortia, and two consortia, uh, including the Zambian and Zimbabwean electricity utilities, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Do you think those are serious bids from the neighboring countries' state-owned utilities that have, have a chance of really being involved in this project? Well, uh, we need to, uh, to see the performance of this consortia in the next uh, two, uh, two phases. But uh, as a start, I think it's uh, it's a, a good prospect, a good indication, and a part of the Mozambican strategy, trying to encourage the region to be uh, bidders for energy projects in, in in Mozambique, because the country wants to position themselves as uh, energy uh, an energy source not just for Mozambique but for the whole region. And in that regard, inviting and attracting 
bidders from the region is part of the, the, the strategy. But uh, in the next uh, sequence, sequential uh, phases, you will see how those bidders will, uh, will perform or if these were just uh, politics and intentions. Yeah, okay. Well, I will. Uh, I, for one, will be very interested to follow how that develops. There was also um, an agreement with Malawi, I think it was the end of last week, uh, on building a much smaller uh, 41 megawatt hydropower project, which is the first I'd really heard of, of that project, um, on a river which forms the border between the two countries. It also talk of what sounds like a very ambitious project to build a gas pipeline from from the Ravuma to um, to Malawi. Do you think that is a project which we can realistically have any expectation will actually happen? Well, um, on on the second uh, on the second issue, I will be uh, very cautious because uh, uh, we have seen a number of uh, projects uh, uh, talking about pipelines, uh, namely two pipeline projects between uh, Rovuma and South Africa. And you know, uh, where are those uh, two, uh, two projects? And uh, you will see in the next near future that the project to, uh, to channel, uh, to channel, uh, uh, to channel, uh, to channel gas from uh, uh, Matola ports to South Africa will go uh, much faster than the two uh, pipelines from uh, Cap Delgado. So uh, I guess uh, uh, it's not impossible to dream. It's not impossible to put projects on a piece of paper, eventually going into studies uh, related to to these kind of projects. But I am not seeing a foreseeable uh, future for that pipeline also uh, as you know gas to sell uh, to sell abroad at this point uh, you can just uh, have uh, 2026 in mind in a very optimistic uh, schedule right yeah and um, it's good that you mentioned the um, the north south gas pipeline projects. So Sasol have um, definitively said they're no longer interested in that. They were one of the um, companies that was going to be involved in uh, building a north south pipeline. And indeed, the north south pipeline was going to be key for being able to build branch lines off to hinterland countries like Malawi. So if the um, if the overarching north south pipeline isn't happening, I think it's even harder to imagine. Pipelines going inland, uh, east, uh, westwards rather, to um, to Malawi and countries like um, Zimbabwe and, and and Zambia. But let's see how how that develops. Moving on now to a different topic. There was the Aklin conference uh, at the start of this week. The um, the organization of veterans of the liberation war and this is Fernando. You'll explain better, but it's a it's a key um, organization within Frelimo, right? Uh, yes, because uh, uh, it's uh, formed by uh, veterans of the, the armed struggle, a sector within uh, Frelimo that always have a, a strong voice. Also because uh, in this organization, you do not go through this kind of democratic uh, scrutiny as you go when you elect the, the organs and the bodies of uh, Frelimo party uh, itself, uh, meaning uh, members going uh, going in, uh, 
depending on uh, on the different uh, influences who is in the leadership. Those ones are kind of uh, permanent members of this organization. And being a veteran, being a, an old person is a, a status. That's, that's why uh, they uh, are so key and so important in influence and lobbying the changes and uh, and the ways uh, Fralimo uh, should uh, should go. So having uh, having said uh, having said uh, that, uh, I think the way uh, and I would say uh, Newsy and Newsy strategists align the, uh, those organizations towards Congress in uh, September uh, have been a way that you'll get as much support as you can for uh, for the congress in this case to support uh, uh, to support newsy and that's one of the purpose uh, of this uh, uh, of this meeting and so the first uh, reactions to the meeting is yes they are very strong behind uh, behind uh, newsy but it needs to be seen uh, yet if the uh, if this support uh, for newsy means also support for a third mandate as an exchange for uh, uh, a statues uh, re- to rewrite the statues of Aklin, namely having uh, the descendants of uh, the veterans uh, getting the getting same benefits as the uh, the veterans which it's uh, a quite controversial uh, issue because uh, people uh, are contesting that in a republic and in a republican uh, regime you have an organization in which people get rights not through uh, democratic principles but in uh, based on uh, family and uh, family relations uh, why is this so important? Because there is a tradition in uh, in the country for those organizations to apply as a, 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 a positive uh, discri- uh, di- di- discrimination, which in in English you say affirmative affirmative action, meaning uh, those people have better access to school universities, housing, fishing licenses, mining, uh, mining licenses. So I'm not saying that this was achieved uh, during this conference, but uh, this is something that I've been uh, floating around for, uh, for a while. Okay. And you made mention in there to the third mandate, um, and this is um, what's believed to be Nusi's uh, desire to have a third term as president, which is currently not allowed under the constitution. How seriously do we need to take this? I mean, it, it's, it was, I was reminded this week that at this sort of point in the electoral cycle, 10 years ago and 20 years ago, we had the same issues with uh, Gabuza and Shisano angling for a third uh, term, but Frilimo never, never let that happen. So why should we take it seriously this time? Um, well, uh, because uh, there is uh, one, uh, there is an organized constituency that is pushing uh, uh, for that, and also because the circumstances, the the, the context is is moving 
in that uh, direction. Um, I would say that for a while it seems that uh, that proposal uh, was dead, but after a number of issues happening uh, uh, in the country, uh, I would say revive this uh, this issue. And I would say one and the, the word success are not my words, but success as it's seen the the trial of the people involved in hidden debts two uh negotiations with the imf third uh, a very positive uh, outcome uh, coming from the war in uh, in cap delgado and having a uh, uh, new cs a key element for the success in bring, uh, bringing uh, uh, international forces uh, to Mozambique uh, against all odds and the opposition of uh, important and strong sectors within the uh, Fredimo party and the, the, the performance of those international forces in reversing the, the situation of violence in Cap Delgado. Okay, so a number of reasons why Nusi is in a particularly strong position now as it comes into a crucial time for for Farimo and the, the, the selection of the next presidential candidate. Thank you very much as ever, Fernando. That's all we've got time for today. Um, it'd be good to have you back on the podcast next week. Okay, have a good time. On Wednesday... Editor of Zetamon News Tom Bowker spoke with Andrew Bauer, a public finance expert who has advised governments across the world on managing natural resource revenues, and in particular, sovereign wealth funds. Hi Andrew, great to speak to you today. Great to speak to you too. Um, Mozambique seems determined to press ahead with the sovereign wealth fund now, um, apparently, presumably with the blessing of the IMF. Um, so just to kick off with a very open-ended question, is it a good idea? Um, sovereign wealth funds uh, can be very useful. Uh, and they can be uh, harmful. Uh, and it really depends on the rules that govern funds uh, and, of course, the context where they're created. In the Mozambique case, the, uh, the expected gas revenues are large, uh, which means that they could have some macroeconomic effects. They could uh, generate sort of excessive uh, macroeconomic volatility, volatility in prices, volatility in uh, government uh, spending, uh, potentially Dutch disease, though I'm not sure that's a huge risk in uh, in the Mozambique context. But if uh, the right rules aren't put in place, meaning uh, rules that constrain what the fund can invest in, or um, you know how the fund is managed, who manages the fund, uh, whether there's proper oversight, whether there's proper transparency, and maybe even most importantly, how much money goes into the fund and under what conditions the money comes out, then the fund could become a a big slush fund. And we've seen lots of examples of that uh, really all around the world. Okay. So just to go back to a couple of those points and maybe um, put them in layman's terms, so volatility in terms of um, government revenues and and government spending, what are the dangers there, I mean, for for a country like Mozambique if they didn't set up a sovereign wealth fund? What are are they trying to avoid by by setting up a sovereign wealth fund? Yeah, uh, I mean, the the biggest uh, challenge that a lot of resource-rich countries face, so countries that are dependent on oil or gas or mining, uh, is, is this volatility problem. And so 
what does that mean? It means that there, there are going to be certain periods where the economy is just flush with cash, where oil money is just flowing into the country, it's flowing into government coffers, it's flowing into the private sector, and it's causing a big boom in the economy. Now, a boom is not a bad thing, right? A boom is a good thing. But the problem is when too much money comes in too quickly, uh, number one, it can generate inflation, um, which, you know, harms the purchasing power of, of everybody. Uh, but the bigger problem isn't that. The bigger problem is the the uh, the way people spend money when they get a lot of it all of a sudden. And you can think of that sort of in terms of your own life. If you got a, uh, you know, a several thousand dollar bonus at the end of the year, uh, most people don't take that bonus and they put it put it in the bank and save it or invest it in their kids. They'll go off and, you know, have a nice dinner or buy electronics, uh, you know, buy something nice for themselves. And governments do the same thing. They don't, if they get huge amounts of unexpected, what we call windfalls, they usually buy things that are, look really nice, uh, like new roads and stadiums and monuments. But then the problem is what happens when all of a sudden oil prices crash? Well, what happens to the road that I was about to build? I can't afford it anymore. What about this nice stadium I built? I can't maintain it anymore. And more importantly, those nice things like roads and stadiums don't generate economic growth. What generates economic growth? It's investments in things like education, in healthcare, in you know uh, productive infrastructure, in, in sewers, in uh, things that that take a long time to plan and a long time to make. And so when you have this volatility, these boom and bust cycles, it undermines the most important parts of development spending. Okay, so it's a it's a way of um, making sure that a, a big bonus, like you compared it to, doesn't get frittered away. But should you've also mentioned a few things there that um, Mozambique really ought to be spending on um, education, for instance. Should Mozambique just actually be prioritizing spending this money as soon as it comes in, but spending it in the right way to to, to put the country on a different development pathway by investing in the human capital of, of the people, uh, of infrastructure. And yeah, just moving moving up to maybe middle income status uh, as quickly as possible, rather than saving to be able to sort of stay on the level. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. The goal of extracting oil from the ground or minerals from the ground from the ground is to make money to pay for social services and other things that are going to make your citizens' lives better, right? And the number one thing for sure is education. Right. Uh, of course, there are other important things like, like you know, uh, internet and electricity and clean water and all those things. Those are also very important, of course. But education is the key to growth. So you absolutely want to maximize the amount of money that's being spent on that. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to earmark your oil money for education. Because what could happen then is you say all this oil money goes to the education budget. And then the money that was supposed to be allocated to education before goes into the luxury goods market, you know, budget or the stadiums budget or whatever, right? So you don't necessarily need to say that the oil money goes to education. But what you do need to do is before the oil starts flowing, uh, or in Mozambique's case, the gas, to have a development plan in place to make sure that when the, the money starts flowing, that there's a broad increase in the in education spending in the country. 
Okay. And what about another idea um, of basically just distributing it to citizens, uh, like through a sort of basic income thing or um, unconditional cash, cash transfers or following a model that uh, was done quite successfully in Brazil, I think, with Bolsa Familia? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Bolsa Familia is what we call a conditional cash transfer program, right? So the, and the way a lot of these conditional cash transfer programs work, and this is true in Mexico, it's true in Brazil, is uh, cash is given to low-income families or to low-income households, but not, it's not just cash. You have to do something for it. Either you have to send your kids to school, or you have to get your kids vaccinated, or regular medical checkups. Um, uh, there's, there's, you have to do something in return. And those, what we call conditional cash transfer programs, have been, yeah, amazingly successful, especially in, in Latin America. Um, what's often proposed with respect to oil and gas revenues is to take that money and give it to each individual citizen unconditionally. So that's what Alaska does, for example. Um, Mongolia did that for a short time with its mineral revenues. And that is maybe a less successful because, number one, it's not linked to some sort of positive social behavior. It's just sort of cash that people generally use for consumption, not for investment. So in Alaska's case, whenever people get their cash, they usually go on a snowmobile buying binge or something like that. Uh, and, and, and there are also very practical problems with that, especially in an African context. Uh, Liberia, for example, tried to create an unconditional cash transfer program to every Liberian out of the potential oil money that they thought they might get that they never actually got. Um, but the question then became, who's a Liberian? Because they realized that as soon as they created some a program like this, all of a sudden, a lot of people just across the border from Liberia would claim that they're Liberian and therefore want the cash. So, uh, you know, I think, yes, in some ways, those programs can be useful, but, you know, there's some risks involved as well. Okay. But it sounds like maybe the conditional um, cash transfer along the lines of the Bolsa Familia might be something that, that Mozambique ought to look at. Yeah. yeah because, we, you know, we're talking about some of, the, some of the poorest people in the world here. Yeah, uh, but I think that's regardless of whether there's gas revenue or not, mm -hmm. right? Um, sure. Uh, yeah, it's a, I feel like it, it, those sorts of programs shouldn't necessarily be linked to the gas revenue. And there's another reason why. Um, you know, gas revenue is volatile. It goes up and down. You don't want to link a long-term social program to a volatile source of revenue. And also, gas revenues are finite. They're not going to last forever. And hopefully a program like that would last for a long time. So, um, you know, yeah, those programs might be useful, but maybe not uh, linked directly to gas revenues. Okay, so maybe some sort of um, sovereign wealth savings program, which can smooth spending over time. Um, something like maybe what Chile ended up with, with its sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I think in the ideal scenario, what Mozambique would put in place would be a fiscal rule that um, requires what we call smooth spending. So basically what it would say is um, doesn't matter whether oil, gas, and other revenues are going up or down. doesn't matter if we have a huge boom this year or not. Public spending increases by a certain percentage every year. And I think the best example of that is from Peru. Peru has a really great what we call an expenditure rule, which increases public spending every year. But if you have, you know, huge increases in mining in mineral prices or huge increases in oil prices, 
one year and then a huge drop the other year, it doesn't affect government spending at all. W one of the concerns that, that I had when Mozambique made its first proposal for a sovereign wealth fund was that their savings rule, how much money would actually go into the fund, was based on a very arbitrary rule. I think it was like 50% or, uh, and then there, there were some years where it was 80% of uh, oil revenue or gas revenue would go into the fund, which really wouldn't address that problem. It wouldn't make sure that spending is predictable. Uh, it would link, you know, the gas sector sort of, or gas revenues to any sort of macroeconomic indicators. It was completely arbitrary. And I think not very helpful for making sure that money is well spent in Mozambique. Right. So the, the, um, the proposed rules, yeah, that Mozambique came out a couple of years ago, still need, still need working on maybe. It's not too late. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think there were, there were a lot of sort of positive elements in the law. The, the fact that they, it did have a, a clear mandate, it did have clear uh, deposit rules, uh, it channeled domestic spending through the state budget. There was a you know, comprehensive governance structure and a robust auditing framework. All those things in the Mozambique law were, I think, really positive, um, where I think there was room for improvement, at least at that time, I don't know where it stands right now, is uh, around a few things. First, um, the investment rules. There weren't clear uh, rules around how the fund could invest and could not invest, which I think is particularly dangerous. We have a lot of examples in Africa. Uh, and around the world of uh, sovereign wealth funds being used by politicians for some pretty nefarious purposes. I think that one of the most nefarious is uh, is the Angolan fund, uh, which was a $5 billion fund given essentially to the son of the president. And long story short, he gave the money to his friend, a Swiss banker, to manage the money. They completely mismanaged it. Huge fees were paid for basically nothing. The manager invested in, in his own property, it you know, it was a real huge, you know, lost lost the government millions and millions and millions of dollars, not billions of dollars. Uh, so we want to avoid those things through proper investment rules. And I think the other, you know, big change that that could be considered is around how much money again goes into the fund versus come out of the fund. You want this fund to really, you know, diminish that volatility I was talking about earlier, uh, and that was really, you know. Those rules were just not included in the fund in, 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 the, in the first draft. Talking of Swiss bankers, you reminded me that uh, I think Andrew Pierce, who was uh, one of the lead uh, conspirators behind coming up the hidden debts deals, actually tried to persuade um, Mozambique to let him run a sovereign wealth fund for them as well, uh, mm -hmm. which I guess was a lucky escape. But let's hope Mozambique uh, continues to avoid uh, that kind of path and that the sovereign wealth fund, if it does go ahead, doesn't become um, just a different mechanism for... Uh, Stealing from the state. Andrew, thanks ever so much for coming on the Zithma podcast. Thank you. And finally, editor Tom Bowker spoke with Peter Boffan, the Kabuligada Project's in house expert on all things East Africa. Peter Bofin is an analyst on the Kabuligado team who has decades of experience following politics in East Africa and the Great Lakes, and in recent years has focused on Islamic extremism on both sides of the Ravuma. I gave him a call to understand a bit more about the meaning of Philippe Nussi's visit to Uganda this week and how that fits into other questions of regional cooperation. Thanks very much for joining us today, Peter. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, thank you for having me. 
According to uh, what Nusi and Museveni were saying in Kampala this week, Uganda is already involved in the conflict in Kabul-Gari to some extent, apparently supporting um, veteran militias. Um, did that come as a surprise to you? I mean, it, very, it very much did. I think that came as a surprise to um, a surprise to most. We don't have a lot to go on. Um, really, it's just a Facebook post from uh, from 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 President Nusi's Facebook page the day he arrived in in in, in Entebbe. And, and also um, President Museveni's um, suggestion that they might uh, extend military further military support um, in the future. So it was um, it, 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 it was surprising in some ways. In other ways, it might make a little bit of sense. The the the, the Museveni's NRM has has sort of experience of of, of, of de- dealing with semi detached party militias. Um, and, sort of, and, and, and controlling them. An ex- example of that would have been the, the Crime Preventers initiative that was established by the then Chief of Police, Kale K. Uhura, um, prior to the 2016 election. Um, so essentially a sort of neighbourhood local local militias to, that, that were to support the ruling party in, 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 the, in, in the, the election campaign. So, the, so these type of... Yeah, party-related formations are something that he that that uh, Uganda has ex- would be comfortable with, and I think I think I think the the the, the role of the militias uh, in Kabul-Gado is probably one of the most interesting things to be looking at in the the, the in the, in in the medium term, um, as to, as because they have um, played a key role in tackling the insurgency, and they will reflect sort of very local political centres of power in places like Nangadi, Nangadi district. And I, and, and, and I think that the Uganda will un- understand the dynamics around how to deal with that as you try to sort of rebuild the state in Cabo Delgado, probably in ways that sort of traditional, traditional donors and great powers who might be pushing sort of de- disarmament, demobilization approaches, uh, they may possibly understand the, the dynamics a little bit better. That said, we should say that we know very, very little, uh, very few specifics about this. We don't know what support they're giving, and that could could, could range from from some weaponry to to, to training. Probably, probably no more than that. Described as logistic support, but that that could uh, that could mean all sorts of things, of course, couldn't it? Exactly. It does underscore how, how the conflict is as much uh, an, an East African issue as a Southern African issue, just in terms of language. The language of, of the Uganda People's Defence Forces is Swahili. That's the, the operational language of, of, the, of the military. So then, so, and the militias will be comfortable in that language as well. Um, so yeah, underscores that 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 it is an East African issue. That's that's what we've seen with all of um, well, that's been a key theme in in in, in Nisi's sort of very very busy diplomatic schedule uh, in the last four months. Yeah, yeah. And politically in Mozambique, the, the, the militias are kind of flavour of the month, but Nusi coming out very much in defence of uh, their role and it having been the uh, conference last week of the Veterans Association and these militias are, are largely made up of, um, of veterans of the Liberation War as well, which is something that um, Museveni likes to... Um, Point to the fact that he he had some sort of uh, involvement in which I'm not entirely sure of the details of, but uh, he apparently spent time with with Fulimo's, uh, in Fulimo's liberated areas during the war uh, for liberation from the Portuguese. So perhaps uh, that explains a certain affi- affinity from his side for these uh, veteran militias as well. And um, and the seven is saying he might even consider sending sending formal troops from from Uganda. 
Um, do, do, do you think that do you think that might be something that actually happens? And, and and if so, how would that work with with the Rwandan troops that are already on the ground? And we've got the we've got the Sadik mission, which is a a multilateral agreement, and then we've got um, Rwanda coming in bilaterally. Presumably, if Uganda came in, that would be an agreement similar to the one that Rwanda has with Mozambique. Goodness, there's no obvious there's obvious there's no obvious mechanism to 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 allow him to 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 to, to send in troops. So you wouldn't have. Um... And the NEAC initiative uh, wouldn't, wouldn't work. And I don't think there would be any political objection from East African community either if, if they did send in troops. Um, if they were to deploy, it would almost certainly be quite a small uh, small deployment, probably building on that support to the militias. What I think this issue highlights is really the, and this is what I was trying to get to in the in the piece in, a, in one of the recent Cavalier Gather reports, which is that it's quite it's 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 the norm really for uh, regional regional issues to be dealt with through sort of tic-tacking maneuvers by the by regional leaders themselves and, and, and between between states uh, rather than through the formal sort of architecture of the regional economic groupings like SADC or EAC. Um, and I think that's that's why it's been uh, somewhat uncontroversial regionally, somewhat uncontroversial regionally, for ORDF to be able to deploy. It's why uh, Museveni can feel quite comfortable about saying he will he will send uh, he, he he may send uh, some, 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 some troops to to capital Gata. I think we need we do need to take his um, his, his sort, of, sort of podium statements with a pinch of salt quite often, um, especially on those but those big state occasions. It's. I think at the moment, again, it would be a good political moment to do so, as that there have been um, considerable tensions uh, between uh, Uganda and, and Rwanda for years now, um, which led to borders being closed recently and movement being stopped and trade being stopped. But in recent, uh, really in the last uh, two months, they seem to have uh, re- uh, reached a resolution around that uh, through direct direct talks between Mohozi um, uh, Mohozi Kanarugaba, uh, Museveni's son, uh, with Paul Gagame in in Kigali, uh, there are a number of uh, there are a number of visits made by him to see uh, to see Paul Kagame, um, which which has led to a a a rapprochement and a reopening of relationships. Uh, Paul Kagame was in in Kampala last week for. Uh, Kanarugaba's forty-eighth birthday party, and also held held talks with Museveni, and it was it was all all very friendly. Um, so again, it's 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 the right time uh, if if if, uh, if Uganda was to send troops into that into that theatre um, alongside alongside Rwanda defence forces. So again, there's a lot a lot of moving parts and a lot of things happening at the same time. There's one one element that after you asked me to to, to come on the show. That, uh, that that crossed my mind and that that uh, we hadn't considered uh, in the Cabalgado piece is the role of total energies in this which is not a direct role but you have total energies now have interests in uh, DRC where they still have interests in some exploration blocks in Uganda of course in Tanzania through the pipeline uh, the export pipeline um, ECOP which runs from Uganda through Tanzania to the port of Tanga I think they may still have interests in in, in, in in Kenya and of course in in Cabo Delgado. So you have a a number of states in the region, all of whom are dealing with this this um, petroleum behemoth. 
which has the which has attracted the interest of the attendant great powers, whether that's France directly, US through the the Exxon interests in LNG in in, in Mozambique, and and the, and the British for the all the the Aberdeen based oil oil uh, contractors. <laughs> we also be looking for contracts. And all, all these governments, with possible exception of Rwanda, well, actually, with including Rwanda now, is there now in Palma securing the site. All these 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 regional uh, states are dealing with the one company, and I think this may give uh, an opportunity for sort of some sort of joined up approach uh, between countries in dealing with this, this this type of commercial power that can be quite disruptive. And I think that might that might actually be in play in terms of motivating states to collaborate around around this this capital around the capital ghetto issue. Fascinating. This is going to give us uh, material to write about for years to come. Uh, the role of Tatal in eastern eastern southern African uh, security and uh, international relations. I just wanted to um, before we finish move on and thank you for giving me an LNG segue there because I just see that there's um, looks like there's movement on the Tanzanian LNG project um, which again one would think might have uh, some sort of bearing on the way that um, Tanzania approaches the question of security in Cabo Delgado. It's often been seen as a competing project. Tanzania's um, offshore gas reserves also in the Rivuma Basin just north of the of the, of the border with, with Mozambique. If Tanzania, Tanzania look as if they're really keen with the, on moving forward with it, do you think this affects how they view security in Cabo Delgado and the importance of it uh, and, and how much they want to be involved in guaranteeing security in their southern neighbour? Yes, it's, it's a significant announcement. The, the head of the Tanzania's Petroleum Upstream Regulatory Authority um, yesterday, 29th of April, was uh, reported as uh, having... It uh, was reported as saying that uh, they expected to conclude post-government agreement with the uh, Equinor, Shell, and partners by the end of May. That's that's obviously very significant, and uh, would then lead to for, you know, for further work to work to move towards an FID uh, final investment decision. It's it's significant for being possibly. I think it's the only the first time an LNG um, sort of timeline target has been met in Tanzania. In my experience, it was a uh, minister January Makamba in November said that the that this current round of host government agreement talks would be completed uh, by May and if they do so he'd have met that uh, met that deadline um, that that would be significant um, I, th- I think the there, there, there always has been a sense of, of, of competition uh, between Mozambique and uh, and Tanzania even if that doesn't really reflect how, how, how LNG markets work but I, th- I think with the uh, energy crisis um, will override any any sense of competition within people's minds. So that will that will focus Tanzania's mind on southern security. But it has been since 2013, really, when you first had uh, civil unrest, some civil unrest in uh, Mtwara region, not just in Mtwara town, but in towns and villages across the region. That was related to uh, natural gas discoveries. Um, and since then, there's been quite a heightened uh, security presence, and that I think that in, in the south, um, I think that will just that will that will just uh, see this uh, for the future. But it will also, I think that, that they, I think they have definitely learned from um, the civil unrest in 2013. I think there will be uh, better communication around it and uh, better efforts at ensuring that um, local interests uh, benefit from 
from uh, from these investments more obviously and that the and that really and yeah so I, th- and I think that will that's just as important as any as any security approach and i think that's one thing they probably learned in 2013 very much so peter bofin thanks ever so much for joining us on the zetamar podcast thank you thank you for listening to the zetamar podcast sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website zetamar.com to receive the podcast by email And make sure to share, review and subscribe to the Zetamar podcast on your preferred podcast provider. Until next week, goodbye.